0: Hello, my name is Simon Johnson, and welcome to this podcast produced by the International Monetary Fund. What do the U.S. Army, the Internet giant Google, and kangaroos have in common? According to the author of a new book, Tim Harford, they're all examples of entities that have failed, learned from their failures, and adapted their way to success. In his book, Adapt, Why Success Always Starts With Failure, Harford, the undercover economist for the Financial Times, uses examples ranging from the war in Iraq, climate change, and developmental aid to illustrate why it's important to seize on risk, failure, and experimentation as a path to success. He joins me now to discuss the ideas in his book. Tim, welcome to the IMF. Thank you very much. Tell us something, uh, Tim, about the the general thesis and the the title, ADAPT, Why Success Always Starts With Failure.
1: The book was originally about uh, how do we solve complex problems can economics help us solve complex problems? And then the more I looked into different ideas, I looked into innovation, I looked into uh, to war, counterinsurgency campaigns, uh, economic development, the financial crisis, of course. These different uh, different spheres of life, these different complex problems, I felt that there was an unexpected similarity, which is because of the complexity of each of these problems. In each case, solutions come through trial and error.
0: Actually, I, I like that about the book. I was, I, I was a little worried that this would be about how economics can solve all the problems. And what I liked about it was it was more the other way around. It was more about how trial and error helps you think about a lot of things, including the economics and the non-economics. And I wanted to start with, with probably the, the biggest uh, disappointment for me personally, just in terms of my thinking about the world, which is play pumps. I actually believed in play pumps. I thought it was a great idea. Could you just explain to everybody a little bit what are play pumps and why it turns out to be rather more problematic?
1: So the idea behind play pumps is that a lot of places, uh, very dry, no access to safe water, uh, you can install a well, uh, but that's tremendously labour-intensive to, to pump water by hand. Why not utilise free labour? Children have lots of energy, children play. Why not attach a pump to uh, a merry-go-round, a roundabout, and children will just play on this uh, on this thing, they'll have lots of fun, you get a little children's playground and this roundabout will go round and around and around. Water will be pumped into a storage tank, and then the adults of the village will be able to access this water without wasting lots of time. So it's a, it's a fantastic idea, funded by advertising on the storage tank, brilliant. The reason I think it's an interesting example is the whole idea of the book is we make mistakes and we need error correction mechanisms. We need to figure out when we made a mistake. And what seemed to happen with the play pump was it started in townships in Johannesburg where the population density is very high and that that roundabout would be in use all the time and advertisers would pay and that's probably a good place for it. But then it quickly moved to places like Malawi, rural villages that aren't actually that many kids and nobody wants to pay for advertising so the pump is expensive. And what you then have is just an extremely inefficient way of pumping water. And you will find the local women in a rather demeaning way, pushing around this merry-go-round and trying to pump water. There's actually a, a Canadian engineer based in Malawi who started a, a little campaign, Owen Scott, to try to convince people that actually maybe play pumps were not appropriate for Malawi. And he he organised demonstrations and videoed them and put the videos onto YouTube showing just what an idiot you look like trying to pump water with this play pump and how long it took you and how demeaning it was. You've removed a perfectly useful working pump and you've replaced it with something else. Now, my understanding is that actually play pumps are learning from that and they are changing. Um, You're not going to get everything right first time and then you need to figure out how to fix the problem.
0: So so let's go from from that important issue, which is very poor people in in part of Africa, to to another difficult problem and maybe even a more immediate uh, tragedy to to many people uh, listening, which is Iraq and what happened in Iraq. Uh, And and the idea that the the military uh, has problems making decisions and and problems uh, with sort of getting useful feedback and adapting, I I think that we've heard that before. But can you just take us through a little bit what Donald Rumsfeld did and why and and how this is an illustration of, in your view, what what not to do?
1: So let's look back five years, five and a half years. It it was possibly the low point of the occupation of Iraq. There had just been a massacre at a town called Haditha. Iraq was basically on the brink of civil war just after Thanksgiving in 2005, Donald Rumsfeld gave this notorious press conference where the journalists noticed that he wasn't using the word insurgent, which was kind of weird because arguably Iraq had three separate insurgencies going on. And it was so noticeable that the journalists actually challenged him on it and said, what's going on? He said, well, I had an epiphany over Thanksgiving weekend. And I realized these are people who just don't deserve the term insurgent. And in fact, it turned out Throughout the army, people weren't allowed to describe the problem they had. It was Orwellian, uh, and and that's a real problem because if you get a decision wrong, you need to be able to discuss the problem that you face and adapt to it. And the situation in Iraq turned around, I discovered, not only because Rumsfeld was replaced and uh, General uh, David Petraeus was installed, he's a very competent general, Um, actually the change was happening earlier. And that's what's really interesting to me because it it was the colonels and the majors on the ground who could see what was going on, who could see the strategy was failing. Their men were getting killed. The locals were getting killed. They weren't making any progress. Those were the people who were actually able to adapt because they had the information and they could experiment. So one of them, Colonel H.R. McMaster, developed an effective counterinsurgency strategy in the spring of 2005 in a city called Talafa. And, of course, what happened was other colonels immediately saw and copied. Information was passed around, emailed, PowerPoint presentations, these soldiers sharing information, all the while the top of the organization was in denial. My suspicion is it's, it's not just the U.S. Army that adapts in that kind of direction because the, the incentives to adapt at the front line or on the shop floor are often so much stronger and the information is so much better than they are up in the boardroom.
0: Well, I think in some ways it's obviously a very discouraging story what happened in Iraq, but it's also encouraging that even an organization as big and as bureaucratic as the U.S. military can adapt. But what about these situations where there's a potential disaster or failure is not an option? So how should we think about experimentation and trial and error when the error can be – Cataclysmic. Uh, nuclear power would, would be uh, one particularly uh, awful example, but there, there are many that you talk about in the book.
1: Yeah, we, we don't want nuclear power plant operators to be fumbling around and trying new things uh, in the hope of finding some cool new way of running the power plant. We want them to, to stick to procedures. So the, the reason I got interested in nuclear power is I, I thought, oh, I'll write something about the financial crisis. And I started by looking at a mini financial crisis from the late 1980s in London insurance markets that was triggered by an awful accident on an oil rig called Piper Alpha where over 150 men were killed. And as I started to read about Piper Alpha, I came to realise, well, actually this terrible accident that I'm describing where actually there was a small mistake and then there was a miscommunication of procedure and then there was a safety system that didn't work because it had been switched off for safety reasons and then there was a, a second miscommunication. There were some people... Motivated to save money for the company who didn't do something they should have done and it got worse and worse and worse. As I read about that tragedy, I thought, actually, I don't need to look at the insurance crisis. I just need to look at this accident and I've already gained some insight into the financial crisis because what these sorts of systems have in common is they're what um, the sociologist Charles Perot calls tightly coupled systems. They're complex, but lots of systems are complex. A tightly coupled system is one where You make a small mistake and the unintended consequences proliferate incredibly quickly. And that's true of a power station. It's also true uh, of finance. So I started looking to engineers and sociologists, psychologists who study these industrial accidents for for their insights. I suppose in a nutshell, the insight is if you can simplify the system and decouple it so that a failure somewhere doesn't necessarily cause a failure somewhere else, that simplification and modularization …tends to make systems a lot safer. And secondly, that we, we shouldn't necessarily rely on what we regard as safety systems. So in the financial crisis, we had a lot of financial safety systems. We had credit ratings agencies. We had Basel capital requirements. We had credit default swaps. We had collateralized de- debt obligations. These are sort of structured products that were supposed to move risk to safer places… And actually, they did what safety systems often do in industrial contexts, which is make the system
0: more complex, make the system more unpredictable, and make people more careless. Um, I, I, run, I run a blog, among other things. And one thing you learn when you're blogging is you put out your ideas, you write them up, you, you love every single one of them when, when, the moment it goes up. And then you find out. The market tells you whether it was a good idea or not based on people's reactions. And the important thing is don't chase your mistakes. When you made a mistake, when you got it wrong, let it go about the um, the sort of self-help part of, of the book at the end. Uh, to me, there was a nice fit. No, no I, I think that's quite right. So I wrote this um, self-help.
1: It's almost an epilogue. It's shorter than the other chapters. It's This is not a self-help book, and this is not a book that says you must need, lead your life in an experimental way. And there's some very good reasons why that possibly isn't always brilliant advice. For a start, you know, a whole system can take a lot of failures, but you only have one life. But still, I... I did feel that we, we probably are not as willing to fail as we should be. And we respond to failure in fairly pathological ways. We do, as you say, chase our losses. Or as Donald Rumsfeld did, we go into denial. Usually in life, most people won't tell us that we're messing up. You get a bad performance review from your boss. You go and complain to your friends and your friends say, well, your boss is obviously an idiot. And maybe what they're thinking is, well, actually, your boss probably has a point, but we're not we're your friends, we're not going to tell you so it, it's it's hard to get honest feedback and it's hard to respond to honest feedback and I feel having gone through all of these different systems, having talked about innovation and poverty and finance and war and so and and business, I felt it was incumbent on me to turn the lens on myself and, and you know on my personal life and other people's personal lives and say, "Well, can we actually learn something about?" Living
0: a slightly more experimental, and I think as a result, a slightly more enriched life. So make friends with people, hire people who are not afraid to to tell you uh, when when they think you're wrong. Not people <laughs> who who live in order to tell you you're wrong, but who'd say this was good, this was bad, and and who give you some guidance along the way. We we yes, we need to be, to be able to seek out
1: friendly, honest criticism, and and uh, we're not going to get it in most walks of life. There are there are exceptions, for instance, blogging, but in most walks of life, people will not just come up and volunteer helpful advice. Um, I thought back as I was writing this, this epilogue to the book, I thought back about one of the times in my life when I've been happiest, which is when I was a college student. I think many people really loved their time as a college student. And well, why? And I think the answer is you're experimenting a tremendous amount in what is basically a very safe environment. You're experimenting with ideas, with new friends, with new hobbies maybe experimenting with things you shouldn't be experimenting with but it's all very very safe you're you're almost inventing yourself as an adult being and it's tremendously exciting and then after i finished at college i went i got my first job i put on my tie i put on my suit and i tried very very hard to impress and to to never fail and to never experiment and i had the most miserable year of my life so failure does hurt but avoiding failure at all costs i think is more damaging and really impoverishes
0: our lives. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Tim Harford is the author of Adapt, Why Success Always Starts With Failure. And I'm Simon Johnson.